this season, and the and, uh, Lord's good. And it's nice to ride down the road and start to see little patches of colors in the, in the trees and stuff starting to show, and, and even having the new decorations out here and out in the lobby. And uh, it just gets you kind of ready, um, ready not just for the change of season, but I think mostly ready for Thanksgiving, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, but one or the other, but I'm, I'm thankful that we're here tonight. But let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. And uh, then we're going to be looking at Psalm number nine tonight. I did want to give you just a, a quick update. Richard texted me this evening and said that Janice has had a had a good day and that um, the doctor is uh, very pleased. It looks like she is making more improvement today with the um, flexibility in her lungs and, and things. So um, still, it still is certainly a, a big prayer request for that to continue. But thankful for another day that there's been progress made. So any little baby step is is really a giant step in the grand scheme of it all, so praise God for that. But um, let's pray tonight, let's pray for uh, those in need, let's pray for the Lord just to help us tonight, show us something we need from uh, His Word, and uh, that God would uh, strengthen us tonight. Now let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for each one that's here. Lord, thankful for another day of life, Lord, that we'll be able to worship You this morning and, and uh, tonight as well as we gather, but Lord, not that we just get to worship You while we're here inside these walls, but Lord... As we go to our home and as we go about our, our day, Lord, help us to have worshipful hearts and hearts that are full of praise and prayer um, to you and, and for you, for all that you've done and all that you are. We do thank you for the good reports that we've had for the Midkiffs, Lord. And Lord, we do pray that you would continue to give uh, grace and a healing uh, touch there, Lord. Help us to not, um, to not stop praying, but to continue on in prayer and to be uh, expecting a, a full recovery and, and just to be praying for that, Lord. And we, we thank you that... Um, that you've uh, made that progress, Lord, in her life and, and in her lungs. I pray that you continue to do so. We do pray that um, for each soul uh, tonight, and that's certainly hurting, Lord. Even today, we've heard of several who have um, in our in our church family who have lost loved ones. Even today, others who have had funeral services today. God, there's certainly a lot of hurt that goes on in our in our life. But Lord, help us tonight as we look at your word to look beyond this mortal world where we face so many pains and heartaches and sorrows, and look forward to the next. And to know and to trust that while we are here in this temporary life, that you are eternally and forever walking with us and for us, Lord. We love you. We thank you for this time. We pray that now you would bless the reading of your word and as well as the, the teaching of it as well. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so tonight's going to be from instead of six in the morning to midday, from six at night to midnight, right? <laughs> so that's, uh, let's look at Psalm 9 here. Psalm number 9. I want to read for us the, the, whole, um, the whole passage together, and then we're going to break it up into just a couple of, of chunks here. It says in verse number one, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. He could have stopped there. It would have been a great psalm. <laughs> but he keeps on going, though. In verse three, he says, When my enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence, for thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou saidest uh, from the, the, in the throne judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their names forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end, and thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them, but the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them 
that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his, uh, his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth him. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest up me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that, uh, that they made, and the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higion Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Tonight, as we look as our words of wisdom and we come to Psalm 9, we're going to be looking tonight at this great theme of praising and trusting the righteous judge. As we're going to see as we go throughout this psalm, it, it covers a whole lot of wonderful truths, but this reoccurring theme throughout the whole thing in this peak point is that God and all that he does in the way in which he judges, in the way in which he operates, and even just his own character and nature is complete and total, pure, perfect righteousness. That gives hope for the believer tonight that I can trust that no matter what God does, he's going to do it right. God isn't going to do anything halfway, and he's certainly not going to do anything wrong or incorrect or improper. And the ones that judge and say, how could God do such a thing, don't really know who God is. Now, it is difficult when dark days come or trying days come to go, why is this happening the way it's happening? Because this isn't how I would do it. I thank God that the world around us does not happen the way I think it should get done. Because if it goes the way I think it should get done for a day, we'd be in more trouble than I could even imagine. Uh, but we know and we trust that God is righteous. Now, first, verses 1 through 2 give us the praise to the righteous judge. He begins with four I wills. All right. He says, I will praise thee. I will show forth thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice. I will sing praise to thy name. Now, look, first of all, I will praise thee. Oh, Lord, he gives here with these I wills a declaration of what the psalmist will do in his worship and trust with the Lord God. Worship is not just singing. Praise is not just picking up our hymn books or looking at our screen and, and singing as the piano goes along. Worship and praise takes place in our hearts long before it comes out of our mouths. Praise and worship comes out of our mouths because it is an overflow of what our heart believes and knows about God according to his word. It is praise and worship that is not just saying, you know, these particular words or singing a particular hymn, but it is an outflow of all that God has done. And it's a, a change of heart. It is that our heart goes, as we're going to see in this psalm, from the gates of death into the gates of the daughter of Zion. As we're going to see, it's, it's, it's a change. Worship should change us. We should be changed by worship. Not that, you know, man, the, those songs are really rocking today sort of thing, but we're changed by the fact that we've met with God and he's met with us. That's what worship looks like. That's why I say this. We gather to worship the Lord corporately, right, publicly. But when you go home tonight, you're still called and commanded and, and even should have the desire to worship God privately. In your family life, it should be taking place. 
in your personal life, it should be taking place. Because everything that we do, whether privately or publicly, is to be to the praise and glory of God. Now he says, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. This is in response to a distressing situation. The psalmist brings himself to praise God in anticipation of the hour of deliverance. I would say this, that oftentimes in our Christian walk, that the sweetest moments of praise and worship in our life take place not on the mountaintops, but they take place in the deepest, darkest valleys. And the moments that we feel the furthest from God are sometimes the moments that in just a second of worship that the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and fills us up and we go from being in this dark valley to where it is as if we are on a mountaintop, even though the situations around us might not have changed yet, inside we're on a mountaintop because we've just experienced God's goodness. We've been able to worship in the middle of storms, in the middle of trials, in the middle of difficult circumstances. The sweetest of praise comes oftentimes from that outflow or overflow, not just of a heart that knows and trusts God, but in a heart and out of a heart that knows and trusts God in the middle of any circumstance. It's easy to worship God on a Sunday morning. It's a little harder maybe on a Sunday night, especially when it's raining, (laughs) right? And we know this, though, that it is difficult, though, to worship God when things don't go our way. However, it's very sweet. It's very needful, not for God's sake, but for our sake. This is what I encourage those who are going through tough times or or even bouts of discouragement or depression is to not focus about how you're trying to claw your way out of this circumstance emotionally or that sort of thing, but to take a step back and to just start praising God for the little things that you see around you. There's been moments in my life in ministry where we've gone through some tough, dark times. And, And the way that the Lord has used things to get out is there was a day we were living in Danville. We were in an apartment. The apartment was a nice apartment, but the neighbors above was not good. The circumstances were terrible. Uh, we, it was, you know, one of the weeks of, do you want gas or groceries, right? And things were tough. And the Lord stopped me and, and he said, look around, son. And it was like, okay, well, you've got a sofa and a love seat. There's a, a sink that runs water. There's a dog. <laughs> you've got a dog. You've got a wife. You've got clothes, more than one pair of clothes and change of clothes and all these things. And it's like, you know what? Today seemed like it could not be any worse or any more difficult than yet in just an instant and a second. A little bit of praise goes an awful long way. He says, I will praise thee. Notice this, though, with my whole heart. With a whole heart. When we gather, not just publicly, but when we come to worship privately in our devotion times or Bible study times before God, we're not to do so half-heartedly, wouldn't you say? Of course. Right? The, the half-hearted Christians, they can stay in the, in, the, in the lobby, right? And I'm not talking about security tonight. Thank you guys for doing what you're doing. But the, you want, when you come through these back doors, it needs to be your whole heart in this thing. But when you sit in the mornings or at evening or whenever you sit down with your Bible open and a pen or, or your prayer list to go over it, it should not be half-hearted. Now, we say that, and it's a no-brainer, but yet many times when we approach church or we approach our devotions, we're going, well, let me, let me make sure I check this off my list today. It's a part of a to-do list, not a part of the top of the list and the, really the only list that matters, and that's glorifying and knowing God more. Spurgeon once said, half-heart 
is no heart. I'd say he's right there. He's a lot smarter than I am anyways, but half, half a heart really isn't much, is it? Uh, I want to point you to an illustration tonight. Uh, in the bulletin here, it's quite fitting. A little cartoon, it's a little cartoon figure holding up a heart, and it says, it ain't much, but it's all I got. And it's showing that the Lord says, it's all I ever wanted. The Lord does not desire sacrifices of bulls and goats anymore. Praise God, because we've got Jesus Christ the righteous, who is not just the Lamb of God, but He is the, the great high priest, prophet, and king for us. But even more so, God does not desire a half-hearted believer nor half-hearted worship. He doesn't want us to just go through the motions of singing Amazing Grace if it's not amazing to us. If, a, if Amazing Grace is no longer that amazing to you because your heart is maybe calloused or you're just having a bad day or you're distracted or concerned about other things, you may as well close up the hymn book and sit down. Go ahead and I would even encourage you in the middle of a service. People might look at you funny. I won't care because I won't see you because I sit up here, right? But if, if you're in a spot where you're distracted and you're trying to sing and it's just not happening, close that hymn book up. I'm giving you permission. Close it up. Sit down and pray. Stop what you're doing in that moment because I'd rather you get your heart right before you sing another note. There is no point in perfect pitch if the heart is not directed towards God. And so we see that if we are to praise the Lord, it should be with every fiber of who we are, what we know, and hold dear about God. He says, not just with my whole heart, but then he says, I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I love this phrase. will show forth all thy marvelous works. The word works here is the idea of wonders, of his redemptive acts from creation, redemption, and of course, one day consummation and the final judgment of his enemies. We see throughout all the Psalms, if you've read the Psalms, there are some Psalms that literally the whole thing just says, and God is good because he did this. And God is good because he did that, right? It, praise the Lord because his mercy endures forever. Because when the uh, Israelites came to the Red Sea, the Lord delivered them and they walked on dry land. His mercy endures forever. And, and, and on to the next and on to the next and on to the next. It is recounting oftentimes the wonders and works of God. It should be for every believer that we have this upon our lips and upon our hearts. One writer tells us wonderful deeds or things is a single Hebrew word, particularly frequent in the Psalms, used especially of the great redemptive miracles, but also of their less obvious counterparts in daily experience and of the hidden glories of Scripture. I would say that every believer tonight should be carrying these sort of uh, war stories, if you will, of what God has done. Uh, these marvelous, wonderful works that God has done in our life. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't know about marvelous works. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Are you saved tonight? All right. Okay. Four, five, six of you. Right. Praise God. That's a marvelous work, isn't it? Something that is dead in sins and trespasses to have the breath and life of God poured into it and goes from uh, a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light to being uh, it under and, and against God even, to be an enemy, to being reconciled and adopted as his son and joint heirs with Jesus. You want to talk about a wonderful work, a wonder of God, a miracle. That is a marvelous work, isn't it? It should certainly be upon our tongues, upon our lips. It should be with us everywhere we go. We should be prepared to tell the wonderful, marvelous works of our God. 
We find the marvelous works from the sunrise to the sunset to the way our bodies work to the daily life that we live. Everything is a marvelous work of God. May we not grow so callous as to forget all that God really does for us. I uh, saw an illustration that someone had posted on, on Facebook earlier this week about uh, an atheist who was trying to come against uh, God and having a conversation with him and talking about how he wasn't real and was going to uh, take something that was belonged to him. And, and he decided to use and to show how he could create stuff too. And so he picked up a handful of dirt and God looks at him and says, make your own dirt. Right? We see this, that man is not nearly as capable as what we think we are, and we're not nearly as wonderful or marvelous as we think we are, but there is one who does a marvelous work, and every aspect of our life is a demonstration of such. He then says in verse 2, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. This is a declaration of the psalmist saying, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. This tells me, and it should tell each of us tonight, that our circumstances should not determine our joy in the Lord. You have the ability tonight to decide if you will be glad and rejoice or not. Do you know that? You have the ability to choose if you're going to sing or not, if you're going to listen to the Word of God or not. You have the ability to choose tonight what your attitude is, right? Everybody has an attitude. So pick a good one. You have the opportunity, you have the ability. That's for all of us. Now, there's some days we all got lousy attitudes. There's some days we don't feel like we're glad or want to rejoice. However, the psalmist, who, by the way, I don't know if you know this, you should, David faced an awful lot more than what you and I have ever faced. I mean, he's literally living in the wilderness on run for his life. His family's turned against him. The kingdom's turned against him. Everything has turned against him except for God. And he just, here in this moment, he's still able to say, I'm still going to be glad and rejoice in, in you. He doesn't say, I'll be glad and rejoice in my circumstances. I'll be glad and rejoice in my own personal worth or works or abilities or righteousness. He says, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. Because he's talking to the Lord here. And then he says about this, that the psalmist loves the Lord. And has confidence in the power and wonder of God's acts and encourages the community in his expression of praise. He encourages us to do the same, to be glad and rejoice. And he says, I will sing praise to thy name. Not only will I be glad and rejoice, but I'm going to show it. I'm going to sing. Now, you can try singing quiet so no one hears you, and okay. You can also sing really loud so that everybody hears you so you're seen. The point is this, though, that the psalmist says, I'm going to sing regardless because I'm not singing so that others might hear me or that so others might not hear me, but I'm singing unto God who has done marvelous works, who has made my heart to be glad and rejoice. And I'm going to do so with my whole heart. Our hearts should be full of praise and wonder at the marvels of who God is and what he has done. I'd ask your heart tonight, before we go any further, what marvelous works, what great things has God done for you? I'm not talking about in your past, but I'm talking about just today that is worth singing about, that is worth giving your whole heart to God about, that is worth rejoicing and being glad in. If you can't think of a single thing, then to be honest, you probably need to reevaluate the cross and that empty tomb and, and what this word tells us. You should probably reevaluate who God is because you're missing him. He's so much bigger and more grand and more kind and more gracious and more wonderful 
what you're able to realize in this moment. May our hearts turn and see that even at the slightest of things in our life, the fact that we even have breath is a marvelous work of God. Therefore, I can and should rejoice. And furthermore, we find then in verses 3 down through 12, this next big chunk, we find the righteous judge and his acts. These are things to praise God for. Now, some of these things that are going to be mentioned by the psalmist are things that you and I would maybe not put on our list of things to praise God about. You and I, at the top of the list of things to praise God about, we say you know, life and the fact that he's loving, salvation and grace and mercy and his kindness and faithfulness. But we normally don't put on the list, or definitely not top ten, his judgment, his righteous judgment, his holy judgment, the fact that he's going to destroy his enemies one day. Knowing that's not a part of the list, right? But it's a part of the psalmist here. As a matter of fact, there's been times where you might be walking through Walmart or the mall and there's just things are rubbing you wrong and there's been days and moments where Cammie's had to tell me, you probably should check your heart there, Pastor Joe. And I'll go, you know what? I can't wait for Jesus to come back because he's just going to, he's going to whoop everybody. <laughs> you know, and you get upset at people. You get mad about situations. Somebody cuts you off in the parking lot, steals your parking spot. And then when you walk through the store, they walk too slow in front of you. You get all upset about that and been out of shape and, Everything else just falls to pieces, and you go, why is it falling to pieces? It's not because everything's really falling to pieces, but it's because my heart is not looking at things the right way. It's because I've got the heart issue, not them. I don't know why they're walking slow. Maybe they've got something that keeps them from walking faster. I don't know, but I mean, it's not that bad. I can just slow down and enjoy the breath that God's given me, but instead of my heart being glad and rejoicing, it often doesn't. But nevertheless, we should rejoice. And we can make fun of how Pastor Joe... Sometimes it's the most spiritual, but we must understand that the fact that we have a righteous judge should actually bring joy to our heart. Verses 3 and 4, we see God judges David's enemies and ultimately the enemies of all time. He says, when my enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sayest in the throne, judging right. David prays that his enemies would be turned back and stumble at the presence of God, the righteous judge. He's anticipating that day. He's anticipating the day that every enemy that has been against him, but even more so every enemy that has gone, uh, gone against God will one day perish and fall, even at, their own, uh, even at their own traps, as he deals with later on in the psalm. Now, some would say that's not very spiritual, it's not very nice. Well, we've already read in the psalms God's attitude towards the wicked. He's angry with them. He's upset with them. He is even against them because they're against him. They're enemies. And so when God says in the scripture that he's against something, it literally means to strive against, like in battle or war. It's a frightening thing to think about the God of heaven to do such with man, but it is man who is at war against God. And we forget that. But here in the life of David, what he's doing is he's anticipating the day and the time that his enemies will be turned back and that they will fall that they will perish. And he says, not at my presence, but at thy presence. While David is a mighty man who has fought countless battles and defeated countless enemies and has done so many great things. And you think back to, you know, some of the early days of David. What does he do? He's defeating lions, tigers, and bears, and oh my, and all that stuff. But then he comes up against Goliath here. And while everyone else who were trained warriors 
is shaking in their boots and in their armor, he comes running and says, is there not a cause? He says, now's the time to fight. And he, he even doesn't wear the army, goes out with some rocks, and he's expecting, he says, I, I'm going to take you down, Goliath, not because I'm bigger, better, stronger than you, but because you've defied God, and he's bigger, better, better, and stronger than you. He knows who he fights for, and he knows who fights for him. That's something that we must never forget in our times of trouble and circumstances, that we fight for God, but even more so that he fights for us, and that one day our enemies will perish. Why? Because our enemies right now in the circumstance of this life, you know what they are? It starts with a T and ends with temporary. They're temporary. Your enemy, the one that is against you, or the circumstance in your life that feels like it's huge and it's coming against you and you can't get around or over it, through it, or under it, it is temporary. And if we can understand that this moment is a momentary light affliction in comparison to the weight of glory and eternity, then it's not so bad. But as we've talked about, we make something that is small up close that attacks us or comes against us to be the biggest thing around, and somehow in our eyes it becomes bigger than God, and it, nothing is. It doesn't even compare. It doesn't even come in comparison. And it says here, one commentator deals with this, he says, where lesser men boast of success and talk of power, David sees God as his rescuer and sings of justice. What a testimony that is of David. It is believed that this is an immediate relief of the pursuit of his enemies as well as speaking of the end of all things. Much in the Psalms, David and the other psalmists are dealing with the immediate and saying, God's going to deliver me even now. And they're trusting in that and praying for that and expecting it. But also speaking of an end of all things, what are the Old Testament saints doing? They're looking forward to the one who will truly conquer a giant. A giant that even David could not conquer. David could not conquer the giant of sin, death, hell, the grave. David can't conquer that. David can be used of God to sling a rock and take down a big old dude. But he can't conquer those things inside of his own heart. Only God, only Christ can on the cross of Calvary defeat the giant that no other man can slay. And that is exactly what Jesus has done. That's why Jesus is the righteous judge. Jesus is the one that the Old Testament saints are looking forward to, that one who will come and will obliterate every enemy. How do we know that that's a thing? Because literally from the very first sin, the very first sin, the victory over it is promised. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. We find the promise of a victor coming, a redeemer coming, a Messiah coming, and he has come. David's looking forward to that day. He has come, and you and I, in our temporary strife and struggle and circumstances, we're looking forward to that one day where Christ will come, and every enemy that has ever come against us, every temporary difficult time, or every slow person at Walmart will be defeated forever and forever. None will conquer God. Why? Because he sits on the throne judging what is right according to verse 4 we move on here we see that the in verse number 4 for thou hast maintained my right and then he says thou sayest in the throne judging right Sorensen writes the first right which has the sense of justice or right judgment David knew that as he did right and lived in the center of God's will that God would do right by him the second word right 
refers to righteousness as a principle. David acknowledges how that God's justice is based upon the principle of righteousness. He thus praised God for such. You want to know what is important today to understand with the great social justice movement going on in our land and throughout the world, mind you, is that man cannot decide what is just or unjust, nor does he get to dictate what is just or unjust. Nor can he say, well, we have social justice, economic justice, gender justice, this justice, that justice. According to the Bible, there is one justice. And it's God's justice. It is what is right. It is what is right by God and in his sight and from his throne. So how do we know what is socially just or whatever just you want to put in front of it? Whether or not it lines up with Scripture, because at the end of the day, there is either something that is just or unjust. There's no type of just or type of unjust. It is either it is just, it is right, or it is wrong. There's no black and white, excuse me, there's no gray area. There's no halfway in, halfway out. And we find that everything that God does and all of who God is, is righteous. And moving on in verse 5 and 6, we find that God judges the wicked. He says, Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their names forever and ever. And then verse 6, O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end, and thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them. Now that's in contrast, verse 6 to verse 7, where we find that they have destroyed cities and they've done these temporary things. It says the Lord's going to be forever. His throne of judgment is forever. But back to verse 5, thou hast put their name forever, and thou hast put out their name forever and forever. The past tenses of verse 5 are prophetic perfects, a feature of the Old Testament. They describe coming events as if they have already happened, so certain in their fulfillment and so clear in the vision but the tenses in verse 7 could refer to the future or the present that are appropriate. The idea here given is that David is saying, you've already done these things, even though those things haven't quite yet happened in David's time. He's saying it may as well already be a done deal that you've destroyed, your, destroyed the enemy and rebuked the heathen and destroyed the wicked and put out their name forever and ever. To put out their name forever and ever is dealing with uh, putting out someone's name of what we would call the Lamb's Book of Life, out of the Book of Remembrance, and as if they are gone blotted out uh, to have a name blotted out of a book it's a, it's a serious thing it's a big thing it's an irreversible thing if you're taken out you're, you're taken out and the idea here is that those who have gone against david but ultimately gone against god their names aren't in the book As a matter of fact they're going to be judged according to that book and that they're not going to be found in there and therefore they will be destroyed they will be rebuked Forever and ever, he describes. That's a very long time. And then goes on to say about the destructions and what they've done, and it's temporary, but verses 7 through 12 describe more about God, our righteous judge, and he says, but the Lord shall endure forever. That gives hope to the psalmist. It gives hope to you and I. That what the enemy has done in our life, what others have done in our life, or to us, or, or come against us, or even the circumstances, they are temporary, but... Our Lord, and that we talk about the word Lord, it literally means a sovereign one, the ruling one, and his rule and his judgment, it shall endure forever and ever. Not only is God eternal, but so is his rule and authority. The eternal judge is seen here and praised for his work that he is God and God alone, and he not only endures forever, but his throne endures forever. His throne that rules and has all authority of the heavens and the earth, the things invisible and, and, and invisible and 
all of those things, but as well as that same throne that will be used for judgment. And because it is saved for judgment, he will judge righteously because he judges not based upon what you and I would call feelings or emotions, but rather based upon what is righteous, what is good, what is holy, what is just. He moves on in verse 8 to elaborate on this. He says, And he shall judge the world in righteousness. The world world here is the idea of not the world created as far as this big old globe we're spinning around on, but rather the world as far as all of those who have ever been alive. Every person. I can't imagine how magnificent and massive that the throne of God is that every person who has ever lived will stand before. Some say, well, you know, it's not but so many. Well, currently right now there's a nearly 8 billion, right? Nearly, roughly, somewhere in there. Right? You can add, give or take. But in the past, we're in the year 2021. The granted, population has increased a lot, especially even in the past 150 years. Now, there are estimates, and, and I would agree with the estimates, that even before the flood, that the numbers of global population in the time were well at least into the hundreds of millions. I find no reason as to why not, especially considering at the time that people were living a lot longer, which means they're procreating a lot longer, which means there's more kids, more grandkids. There's ability to have more people. And the fact that they aren't dealing with all the things that we have in our foods today or medicines today, let alone they are also not nearly as far away from the original sin, which means sin has only had its impact, but is for so long in the created order, in the creation of themselves and in people. So it's easy to fathom or to imagine that there were literally billions of billions of people who have existed in the world today and throughout all of human history. If the world, if you take a young earth creation view like we do, and I certainly do, around 6,000 plus years, and if we've got 8 billion now, and that's jumped up so much in the past 100 plus years, imagine how many. We find that each one will not escape the judgment nor the eye of God. He alone sits upon that throne and has authority to judge, and he will judge righteously. It says, he shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. It reiterates exactly what he said in the whole verse. Over and over and over again, righteous, uprightness, what is right. This describes who God is, and it gives our psalmist hope, and it should give us hope as well tonight. In verse number 8, uh, excuse me, uh, verse number 9, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Well, boy, it gets better for the psalmist here because not only is he trusting that God is going to do that which is right for all of eternity, but that that same very God is also the God who is a refuge for him, a refuge for those that know him. And that even though that you and I will too stand before God, that we stand before him as he is also not our judge, but also our refuge. It is he that we cling to. It is his righteousness that we're clothed in, that we get to enter into his kingdom. Not because we're good, but because he's good and he saved us. We think about that moment that even in the middle of the judgment that you and I, I believe I will certainly have much to weep over. And that's the whole point and why he's going to have to wipe away tears. There will certainly be tears at that judgment seat. 
And I will have more tears than I could even probably imagine, but he will wipe them away. And that even though I will face a judgment for my motives and for the things that I preach and be held accountable for those things, that not only will he wipe away my tears, but that even in the middle of that judgment, that he is still my refuge then, but he's also my refuge now. He's the one we run to. He's a refuge in a time of trouble. And to be honest, as long as we're living in this world, it is a time of trouble, isn't it? And it seems as if the longer that we live and we watch the world get darker and darker and more wicked and vile, the more and more we need a refuge because the more this place becomes a place of trouble. Furthermore, we find this, as one writer writes, that the psalm is a great pattern of praise on a far too much neglected level in our day. We praise God much for His mercy. That is right. But it is a good thing to recognize His righteous rule and to praise Him for that. He not only judges the wicked, but the fact that he is a refuge to those who are faithful. He says in verse 10, And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. And then he gives us the why. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Not one time, according to all the Psalms and all the Old Testament and all the New Testament, There has never been a single time, nor will there ever be a time in your life as a believer that God will forsake you. As a psalm, I believe in uh, Psalm 37, I believe that the righteous have never been uh, seen begging bread, forsaken. It is the Lord who has blessed them and has brought them up and has taken care of them. That's who God is. He knows his people. His sheep hear His voice. He takes care of His sheep. Why? Because He's the same one that later on the psalmist is going to say that He takes His sheep and protects them and leads them uh, into safe places and beside the still waters and restores the soul and and all of these things. It's who God is. That Thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek Thee. Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people His doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth him. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. James tells us about that. He giveth grace unto the humble. And there is always grace upon grace and more grace. And as um, one song uh, goes, that my sins, they are many. His mercy is more. His, His grace is more. His mercy is more. It is always whatever we've got in life, whether it's a problem or a personal sin, There is nothing that His grace cannot cover or restore or redeem. We find the great truth then in verse 13 as He then pauses in verse 13 and 14 to cry out for mercy. And we would think this might be strange for the psalmist because he's been triumphing so far and praising God. So why would he be asking for mercy at this point? Because there is never a point in time where we don't need the mercy of God. Whether we're worshiping in a mountaintop or in a valley low, we are needful of God's mercy. Verse 13, Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death. Notice the contrast, verse 14. That I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I'll rejoice in thy salvation. If you remember in David's life, he had been driven from Jerusalem. He had been driven. And by the way, the word Jerusalem, the name, it is a a city of peace. The Salem part in Jerusalem, it is where we get the the word shalom. 
It is where we get a, a, a peace, a, a greeting. It is a peaceful thing to enter into the gates of Jerusalem for, for David, especially because this is where his, the, the temple is. This is where, where it would be, rather. This is where uh, God has met with him and dealt with him. This is where God has used him. This is where uh, his throne is. This is where uh, everything belongs to God. It has always been the capital. It's been the capital there. And, and we find later on throughout Scripture all that God does with Jerusalem. And we find that one day there will be a new city of Jerusalem, a place and a city of peace. And he says, have mercy upon me, O Lord, and, and, and uh, consider my troubles, consider those that trouble me and, and deliver me out of the gates of death and, and to deliver me essentially to the gates of life or to the gates of peace. Let me go through there so that I will rejoice in thy salvation and see that not only when we're saved, but one day when we leave this world and enter into his full and final rest and peace that is in Christ forevermore, that we will pass through gates, if you will, of death unto life. From that which was chaotic to that which is peaceful, to that which had enemies against us and against God, to where there will be no more enemy to come against him nor us as well. We find that there is... Never a circumstance, we don't need His mercy, but as well, it's by God's mercy that we pass from those gates of death through the gates of Zion, which is another way to understand the, the gates of that eternal city of Jerusalem, of peace. And furthermore, verse 15 and 20, we find the remembrance of our judge and His judgment. He says, The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made, and the net which they hid is their own foot taken. This is to be understood as, He's trusting that this is going to take place. He's trusting that this is the full and final outcome for all of his enemies and the enemies of God. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. Well, what is his judgment? His judgment so far has been described as righteous or upright judgment. So that means that the Lord is known by one thing. Righteousness. If you could sum up all of who God is, it is his Holy character. Notice this, that with the attributes of, of God, we don't say certain things, we don't use certain adjectives to describe every attribute, do we? But if we were to use one, I would make the argument that it would be holy. God's love is a holy love. It's not a love that's based upon feelings or what the other person's doing for us, because if that was the case, how in the world would he ever love us? He wouldn't. It's, it's a holy love. How about his wrath? Is it just being a mean old man and playing whack-a-mole? No. It's a holy wrath based upon his holiness, his holy character. That there is no spot, no, no, spot, no blemish, no, no darkness in him. That he is light and love. That he is purity. That he is all and all that he does and is, is righteousness. That's why the Scripture says, be holy as He is holy. That's why if we were going to root this thing down, we find that the Lord is known by righteousness. And I would say the reason why the enemies don't like God is because they don't like righteousness. To know what righteousness means, to know what rightness is, means that we would have to conform to that. We would have to answer to that. And the reason why the enemy doesn't want that is because their hearts would then have to change. Their hearts would then have to be humbled. Their hearts would, be have to, would be, have to be bowed before this righteous judge who they will stand before. He says, the wicked is snared in, his, uh, in the work of his own hands. Then he gives two words here. Higion and Selah. 
Now these two words together. Uh, one commentator addresses these words. He says, finally, David completes the verse with Hegion Selah. The word Hegion is not translated, but has the thought of meditation. Selah has the ideas we've talked about uh, sort of to pause, reflect. The greater thought likely is to pause and meditate or think about the truth just uttered. There's considerable, considerable cause to think about what has been said. What has just been said? What has just been said is that the Lord is known by the, right, uh, by the judgment which he executeth. Which is what? Righteousness. If you are on a mountaintop, you know what you should dwell on? The righteousness of God. The character of God. You know what? If you're in the deepest, darkest valley in your life you've ever been in, and you don't think you can get any worse, you know what you should dwell on? The righteous character of God. I've talked to many who have said, you know, I, I'm upset. I, I just can't get my joy anymore. And I'll say, well, what are you studying? <laughs> and they'll say, Oh, I've been studying the end times for a long time. I just can't get out of it. You know what I'll tell them? Quit. <laughs> they say, well what, well, what should I study then? Because it's, it's coming. I'm going, quit it. If you want peace, whether it's about the end times or how about the right now times, study to know God. Why? Because the more I know about God, the more I can trust God, and the more I trust God, the more I trust God right here and now, let alone for in the future of the end times, because that means I'm trusting to know it, that whether end times come or not, and whether I'm here for them or not, that God's going to be righteous, and He will judge righteously, and I'm on the winning side. So if I know who God is, then it will be perfectly okay. So if you're down, if you're out, if you're struggling, or if you're doing great, just get to know who God is. And boy, will it open up our eyes. Boy, will it help us. And moving on, he then continues and says, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. That right there is a sermon in and of itself. That's the other five and a half hours tonight. <laughs> but he says a very key thing here. This is not just, mind you, for David and the pagan nations that are all around that he is defeated and fought against. This very much goes for every nation that has ever been in existence. And this is important. Every government that has ever been established, which government, by the way, is established by God. I believe early on in Scripture. God gives leadership and laws for a reason. Right? Because if left to do what man wants to do, it's going to be far more ugly than what it is even now. This is why we talk about when we see issues today, it's, I would make the argument it's not a gun problem or a knife problem or this problem, it is a heart problem. Every sin, matter of fact, I would say that sin cannot be legislated. If man wants to do something wicked and wrong before God, he's going to do it. It's what man has always done. It didn't stop Cain and Abel happening. It certainly had, didn't even stop uh, the garden from happening the way in which it happened. It has never stopped sin. Where man wants to do sin, man will do sin. But what we find, though, is that the ending for those that forget God is not good. The wicked shall be turned into hell. And, he says, all the nations that forget God. The purpose of government is to uphold the standard and rightness and judgment of God. This is why it is not the government's job to tell churches what to do, when to meet, how to meet, and all those things. 
nor is it their job to tell you what your children should learn or know. And that's about as political as I'm going to get tonight, but the reason why we see those things taking place today is because we live in a world which nations and whose nations have forgotten God. What it means to forget is not that we just go, oh, oh, I forgot, forgot you were there, forgot you were standing there. The idea is that I know you're standing there, but I'm ignoring you. It's the idea of suppression. Of, I, oh, I just slipped and forgot that I was representing God and that what was right and what was wrong. Governments don't forget what's right and what's wrong. They know. Why? Because it's in our heart. It's the law of God written upon our heart that we know. For a nation to forget God is a scary thing. Because when a nation forgets God, what it means is that the people have forgotten God. And what it means for the people to have forgotten God is it means that they very much know who He is and they very much know what is right and they don't want either one of those things. This is why in the days of which we're living in, we should never be surprised that the things take place in our world, weathered catastrophes, judgments, mind you. I would certainly say and argue that the things we find in our world today are birthing pains and precursors to a greater judgment that, praise God, I'm, I'm not planning on being here for. But judgment comes to those who forget God and always will because it always has. And all throughout the Psalms so far, from Psalm 1 all the way through, we find that the wicked will be wicked as long as they want to be wicked, but they won't get by with it forever. God will have the final word and say so, and thank God that He will. The thing that often gets asked is, well, if God was so good, then, then why would there be hell? Why would there be wrath? Why would there be punishment? Would He be a good, holy, just father or judge if there wasn't would a good mom or dad never punish their children if they did wrong you wouldn't call them much of a mother or father would you so if god is holy and right and upright in all that he does then there must be a hell and there must be judgment but the issue and the fact is this that those folks who go don't have to but they do so because they forget neglect ignore and even despise God as we've read in the first eight psalms he then says for the needy though shall not always be forgotten the expectation of the poor shall not perish forever arise O Lord means he's calling on God to action he says let not man prevail let the heathen be judged in thy sight and he says put them in fear O Lord I believe this is a prayer that we should carefully but probably pray in our day-to-day. In a nation that has forgotten God, to be quite honest, I think the best thing that we could pray at this point is for God to give them a fear of Him once more. That's a scary thing to pray because it certainly does not mean sunshine and roses or peaches and cream. It means a judgment and a holy judgment. For God to get a hold of hearts, for God to get a hold of those who've forgotten Him and to have them look at Him real quick. It reminds me much of the nations that God judged in the day of the author of Psalm here, as well as in the people of Israel, how God used ten severe plagues in Egypt to get a hold of some hearts and to say, 
you might do as you want and you might get by with your wickedness for a while, but it won't be forever. And today I believe God would say the same thing to us. He says that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Nations forget God because they forget they're only men. And that's what we find ourselves in this world today. Today I would say that we need to reflect on this psalm. We need to bring it together to understand that we start off in this psalm with this sort of praise and glad and rejoice and all these things, and we don't end on a solemn note. While it might seem that way, we end on a note that is able to be glad and rejoice and praise God with the whole heart because God is the righteous judge and will one day vindicate all of the upright and all of the humble who have sought Him at His word and done His will. This is a warning to the wicked and to the wicked nations, but it is a reminder that God will prevail and take care of the humble who trust in Him. Tonight, I'd probably say that I'm looking at those who are the humble and who trust in Him. Tonight, I probably am not looking at those who have forgotten God or a part of the wicked group, but tonight, I would say, let us be careful in our own heart to make sure we don't become a part that does forget the Lord. That we remember that you and I, too, those saved, are just men. I believe, I'm not sure who the quote is attributed to. It's been said so many times at this point. But at the end of the day, even the best of men are at best men. That's it. We are only man. We are only woman. We are but human. God is God, and He calls on us to trust in Him. And may we do so tonight, because if we do, there's a whole lot better outcome in eternity, but there's a whole lot better of a life to live now, trusting the Lord walking in His Word, and knowing that He is a refuge in my day of trouble now and forevermore. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this night. We thank You for this time that we could gather, that we could worship You, that we could see in the psalm, Lord, what You've given to us to know more about You. And God, help us to praise You for being the righteous judge, but as well to pray for our nation. Pray for our people that have forgotten You. Lord, I pray that You would help us to make sure that we don't do the same and to remember that we are just men before you. Lord, before you, we're just worms, but it's through your precious son's precious blood that we are covered in your righteousness that we can stand before you and come to this throne of grace as we pray to you now. And we want to thank you once more for this time and thank you for all that you've done in our life for the marvelous works. And help us now as we go from this place to carry your marvelous works upon our heart, upon our lips, and to meditate on the truth of your word and to trust in you regardless of the circumstance of life that we find ourselves in. And Lord, that tonight, that you might be a refuge for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you and praise you for who you are and what you've done. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a blessed night and we'll take a pause for the other five hours.